I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. This week, I'm lucky enough on Conversations of Inspiration to be speaking to Ash Bishop, founder of the Brilliant Signs Company. I met Ash a few years ago when I asked him to create our shop signs at Holly & Co. It was such a meeting of hearts, minds and souls. Ash started out in the army at Sandhurst until he decided that it was time to walk in his great-grandfather's footsteps and followed the family tradition of sign writing. He decided to resurrect one of the most admired sign businesses, the Brilliant Signs Company, which was originally founded in 1888 but fell into disrepair. Ash reclaimed it in 1999 where he learned and refined his craft, creating the most beautiful glass signs and sign paintings around the UK and across the world. We had the most wonderful conversation talking about his unusual journey, what it was like starting out in an industry that was almost killed off due to technology, as well as his mission to restore the high street through his beautiful craft, injecting that much needed soul back into our streets and in turn, bringing a community together. I'm so excited to share with the wider world the ash that's sitting here today, as I know how much everyone is going to love you as much as we all do at Holly & Co. Thanks, Holly. It's exciting. I don't often get to get behind a a microphone and get to talk. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Brilliant. I remember so vividly the first time we spoke, I think it was about three years ago now, and it was really felt like a meeting of minds. And I just have to quickly share this story with everyone as I was just one of these moments. We had just secured the lease on our first shop at Holly & Co. And we were looking for the right person to make and hand paint our shop sign. We were obsessed with the beauty of the old fashioned shop fronts. And I'd been given this amazing book by one of my dearest friends and early investors at Not In The High Street, which was called The High Street. And it had been illustrated in 1930 by Eric Revillius, who had gone around the UK illustrating the incredible shop fronts that were around at that time. My sisters and I were looking through this book in awe and there was this incredible image there of an old shop front called The Lettermakers, the Lumineer Sign Company. And we knew then that this is what we had to have. The beauty had to come back to the high street. So at the same time, I was visiting my parents' cottage in a little town called Holt in Norfolk, which has one of my favourite shops. It's a deli, restaurant, B&B, and it's called Byford's. And on closer inspection, I saw this company name etched on the sign called the Brilliant Sign Company. So I googled the name 
rung the number and this wonderfully cheery man picked up the phone. And after chatting for a couple of minutes, we soon discovered that we were at the same school together, a couple of years apart, but that you were only down the road. And that, yes, you would make our sign for us. So a few years down the line, and you have helped us create what I think is the most magnificent shop fronts, I would say in the UK, alongside this wonderful friendship that's blossomed. And I feel a little emotional, actually. Um, Normally, I get quite emotional at the end of these things. I'm already feeling emotional. (laughs) I'm so happy to be interviewing today because I know you have the most brilliant story. So enough from me. I'd love to get straight straight in. I'd love to hear your story firsthand, going back to the beginning, if we may, from the young Ash, who I know had dreams of going into the armed forces, and then turning into the successful sign writer Ash, who sits before me today. Well, thanks again, Ollie, for uh, for asking me to come. This is uh, this is going to be great fun. Um, I, uh, since an early age, at the earliest of ages, I can re- remember back to I'd wanted to go in the armed forces. At the time, probably until I was about 12 or so I didn't know whether it'd be the army or the RAF but I got into flying and went into the air cadets and did everything I could in the air cadets and was there every weekend every couple of nights a week and uh, I immersed myself into it and at the age by the age of 13 I thought I know what I'm doing for my future so at the time the Berlin Wall was still up and all you needed to be an RAF pilot fortunately was five O levels English and maths included and that was it. And they let you loose on something so long as you passed your test or your interviews and uh, aptitude tests. So about the age of 70, I, I left school at 16 and then I, I went to Maidenhead College. But halfway through it, I thought this really isn't for me and I don't really need them to go in the RAF and left and went and worked on building sites and um, applied to the RAF, at which point, good for the world, but unconveniently for me, the Berlin Wall fell down and uh, all of a sudden there wasn't quite so much a need for for pilots in the RAF. So I went back, uh, I was told by the recruiting office, you need two A-levels. I think this was in late December or mid-December. I thought, oh no, how am I going to get two A-levels quickly? (laughs) So I went back to the college and asked if I could go on a night school course. They said, of course you can, it starts next September. No, 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 I need to get them now. I begged them to let me finish the last quarter of the course. I started in January, took the A-levels in May and I got my two A-levels. Oh my goodness. Went back to the RAF. Here's your two A-levels. Recruiting's not good. The only way you'll get in now is to get in the university air squadron. Oh no, another hurdle. No one in my family had ever been to a university. So I think I got in the car, went home that day, read about clearing and asked a friend who'd been to university. And then uh, I knew that Bristol University Air Squadron recruited from about three universities in the West. It was the nearest place. So I drove down found the, the law faculty, knocked on the door of uh, the admissions tutor, who was a chap by the name of Brian Clements, as I recall, and asked him for a job. And uh, he was a constitutional law lecturer, which is, is quite staid. And he said, I gave him the story. And he just looked at me in disbelief and then said, on, a, on account of uh, the unusual uh, manner of your application, I'm prepared to take a chance on you. And I kissed him, I believe. <laughs> So I got into university, started my degree, and then straight to the Fesher's Fair, got to apply to the University Air Squadron, and out of many hundreds, thousands probably of applicants, I got one of the few places. So I got to fly for three years, which was the best time in my life. Every three times a week, four times a week, summer camps, 
in my last year, I got attached to the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, had a summer going around the air shows, flying in the back of the Lancaster, showing Battle of Britain vets around, around the aircraft. It was, it was pretty special. But my eyes had started to go. I was in this grey point of whether I could fly or not. Mm. And in the, it was going to take so long to resolve, I applied to go in the Army. Went to Sandhurst in 95, I believe. And then uh, my grandfather and my uncle died. I come from a family business. And um, there was, well, whilst there was no pressure put on me by my family, I felt obliged that perhaps I should be back there. And my regiment allowed me to do a little go-between job in one of their TA units. And uh, I did that for a few years and, and got a bit of both worlds, really. But a time came when I thought, I really need to do something that I for just me, not this halfway house thing. The business had resolved itself by then, the family business. And I'd always, always loved making stuff and colour and paint and wood and gold and glass. My my now wife, then my girlfriend, we bought a gypsy caravan when we were 16 and we did that up. That certainly started us off and Sarah had started sign writing and been taught a bit. But I was umming it up. Barrister, sign writer. Barrister, sign writer, flip the coin, much to the, uh, uh, I'm sure, pleasing of the law profession, uh, I was a sign writer. <laughs> and um, I've done it ever since. Look back every day and think, oh, why am I doing this? But I love what I do. You wouldn't do it otherwise. Oh, what a story. As you said, and the company, Brilliant Signs, has the most wonderful history. It was founded in 1888, but you actually reclaimed it, as you said, in 1999. Yeah. They're the most beautiful photographs on your website showing what the business used to look like in the 1800s, images of the factory that it grew into and the catalogues of signs that customers could order. I saw recently an amazing post on your Instagram that you came across one of the original Original Brilliant Signs catalogues on eBay. Tell me more about this. Well, I've been searching for that catalogue for 20 years. I had a photocopy of one. Wherever I went, they'd just got rid of one or someone knew someone who had one. But not, one never turned up and uh, I, it was quite a lot of money on there. I think it was a good couple of hundred quid. And I remember saying to Frank, one of my customers and a, and a good pal, I said, God, it's a lot of money though. And Frank just looked at me, he said, you lunatic, just get it bought. And uh, I bought it and it's, it's such a wealth of information and, and I cherish it. But the history of, of Brilliant Science itself probably reflects Britain, really. It was 400 people strong at its highest point. It led the world in manufacturing techniques. It was also that industrial mix of families where everyone knew each other. Probably like every town had, but Brilliant Science was special. Most people lived in and around Shepherd's Bush live next door to each other, and just a wealth of creative craftsmanship under one roof. They did everything from vitreous enamelling, carving, brilliant cutting mirrors, uh, metal work, metal shop fronts, shop fitting. I'd love to have seen it in its heyday and, and just reveled in the extent of knowledge and craftsmanship that must have been there. I've got to say, oh, the latest incarnation of the company is on a much more craft level, a smaller level, but... I'm always thinking, would the boys in the workshop like what we're putting out? And if I think, yeah, they'd have, they'd have said that's all right, then that's my goal mm. to say that the old guys would have, they'd have said that's all right. Well done, boy. <laughs> and it must be such a pressure to its memory and to its roots 
that you do it proud. Only you know, really, that pressure to keep that quality or the ethics of what you do. Do you feel that? Yeah, definitely. And it influences the way I make things. I, I'm i not really precious on making things necessarily all on a handmade scale. I hand draw things, but if I can mechanise or speed the process up, I always will. And this is the story of Brilliant Signs. Up until the late 1800s, mostly letters that were put on shop fronts behind glass were carved in wood. But Brilliant Signs perfected and patented a process called the Brilliant Letter, where they stamped a carved letter in a copper material and gilded it, which vastly sped up the manufacturing process, cheapened the end product so it made it more affordable and last indefinitely. So that's always been my guiding light, is that if if my signs are priced out of the high street, then there's no point in making them. They've got to be affordable and they've got to compete with a modern metal sign of some description. They've got to be on the medium cost of modern signage. Otherwise, it's an elitist thing and I want them out there. I want people having them. You know, my job is to make the high street a slightly friendlier, more individualistic place. And without having manufacturing techniques that match that ethos, it can't happen. Mm. Going back to your childhood, you spoke about your great-granddad. He was a tattooist and sign writer living in Slough, which is where you are still based. What was he like? Tell me about him. What signs did he create? Are there any around today? And did he train you in your craft? Uh, Well, my my great-granddad, Lewis George Crane, he died in the late 50s, early 60s, so I didn't meet him. But I feel like i known him through my great uncles and my nan and my mum who, who lived in the house with him. He was probably like an awful lot of men in those days. In the thir- Let's go back to the 30s, perhaps. Very artistic, but there was no real outlet for a working job where it was, where it was art-based. He'd been to art school in Brighton, working-class lad from Islington, I believe. And uh, he found his outlet after the First War, where he drove limbers up and down the lines with horses. He went to Wales, where there was a need for miners, and I think he carried on his art and his tattooing there. Then, when the Depression came, there wasn't quite so much need for coal. Like so many people from the valleys of Wales got on the train and headed, headed east and got off at Slough. And so he did country sign writing, provincial town sign writing, anything that came along, but he loved his tattooing. Um, my mum often tells stories of, young men, teddy boys or soldiers from Windsor queuing up out the front of the house on a Saturday morning. (laughs) And then the two boys, Jack and Sid, uh, having to carry another fainting victim onto the, uh, I should imagine it was slightly more uh, industrial in those days. And uh, my mum often said that to be left on the couch and a bit of my nan's, uh, or great nan's port and lemon was administered. (laughs) And then, uh, and then the artwork continued, I should imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yes, after a few of those. It's so fascinating to think about making a living, being creative, as you said back then, to never be referred to as being creative. It was just making a living, doing a trade. You would definitely not call it an artisan. You would never have definitely not described it as an entrepreneur. And now I think you think back to what you're doing and people who were listening to you will think of it as a dream job to make a living with their hands. You must have people say that to you all the time, that they wish they could have a skill or a job like yourselves. But back then, it was very, very different. I would have thought so. I think the higher points of his career, he I know my aunt lives on the Isle of Wight and said his name is in the 
paybook for Osborne House, gilding and marble in there. So he certainly travelled about a bit and did some um, decorative painting and, and gilding. But uh, it was a job. And I think it was hard times, the 30s, 40s, you know, 50s. It was all austere times and you did whatever you could to get by. But he certainly had a talent because he kept doing that until the day he died, as far as I, I've been told. So uh, there was a call for it. There's, there must have been a call. Mm, you know, mm. all signs were hand-painted then. So mm. there would have been that. And uh, I'm sure that the local lads wanted tattoos still. So it kept him... And yeah. do you think it's quite odd now? Because I can imagine, well, when you were doing our shop, there you are up on your ladder and then people hover around you, don't they? And you're just such a wonderful character because you talk to everybody. But if you think back to his time and now your time where people look at what you're doing as this, as I said, this dream job, you know, you aspire to be work. It's quite very romantic as well. It's, it's such a short period of time how it's changed. I've got a photo on my, on my wall in the workshop of some chaps sign writing probably around that same era somewhere between the 30s and the 50s and they are surrounded by kids and ladies with push chairs and passers-by I think it was a baker's uh, delivery boy looking at what they're doing so I wonder if if you've ever done anything slightly arty on the high street you know you know what it's like if you see an artist painting a picture in Windsor or, or somewhere of the of the Brockers or the castle people are always looking and I think it probably has always excited the same interest you know people do do like to see it and will ask you questions. Sometimes you don't want them to. <laughs> You're watching to find uh, um, the local character. Yes. <laughs> so you started your business after leaving the army. Yeah. What was the moment like when you went? Was it the defining moment of you now taking this new path, that sliding doors moment? Yeah, I'd been going that way for some time because my friends, I, I had the guy and Joe Behrens, both great pals of mine and both worked with their hands, thatching and coppicing and underwoods work and wattle fencing and that. And I knew I was lured to, to their side of the fence, what they did. And I, I just wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. It could have been wood or it could have been paint, but I decided they were doing that. So I thought I'll, I'll do my thing of sign writing. But it was inevitable, I think, since I I was born. I think it was always going to come to this. I just didn't know it. <laughs> you started your business as a sign painter. And at the time where really everyone was becoming completely obsessed by technology, I'd read that one of the reasons we stopped having beautiful hand-painted signs was because of the new software being invented in the 60s and 70s with the advent of the new giant printers and the vinyl cutters, which had made it cheaper to mass-produce signage. But I think what we didn't realise, we were about to lose the soul and the uniqueness of our high streets at that very same point. The soul that came from creating these beautiful hand-painted signs. I think you've absolutely summed that up there. That is exactly what happened. And it is in many ways. It was progress. You know, you might need to go round the circle to come back to the start. And I think we're at a happy medium now where I, I was lucky. Sarah and I both caught the last couple of years of course at Hammersmith College where they taught sign writing and so we got um, a city in guilds and it was right at the end but it did incorporate a few of the modern technologies not a great deal but I just wanted to run a sign company and, and do whatever came along but I wanted to make nice stuff and we had a vinyl cutter and we had a CNC machine and for many years 75% of what we did was um, modern signage but I learned loads of lessons from that 
and it kept us going because there was people didn't want sign writing you know you couldn't give it away in some places the last bastions were honors boards old vehicles antique shops Eaton College really rescued me they still wanted hand-painted signs done they were just up the road and I've been there for 20 something years now and they enabled me to practice all the time and and try to get as half as good as the old sign writer Mr John Hames who, who was the sign writer there has always been my hero really Although I never met him, kind of had an apprenticeship from him. Mm. But I'll never be half as good as he was. And so it's that mixture. For others looking in sometimes on livings where your hands are your main tool, they seem to feel like it's black and white, that actually, you know, you're not a sincere artisan yeah. if you've used technology yeah. as well. Whereas, and it, we're going to talk about the high street in a moment, but actually it is that blend. If you can blend it where it fuels the fact that you can create something beautiful that is hand-created, that is come from your artistic talents, actually you can become more efficient or your business can become more efficient, then that doesn't take away from the skill from the the ethics from the history no I always say I'm really lucky that I get emails from young people around the world two or three a week you know wanting to learn sign writing wanting to come work with us I always my aim for them is that you should always aim to be able to do everything by hand that's your aim that's where you need to be but that doesn't mean you should have to do everything like that and, and I certainly you know I I would say 40% of what we do is just completely hand done but with the glass signs, I can control the process. Most importantly, like I said, I can produce them for the right money, which mm-hmm. it comes down to that. I can produce them with better products. They last longer. It's, it's absolutely vital. Otherwise, people don't have them. And I found that through 10 years of, of trying to sell them. And you do one a year. That's a hobby, mm. a bad hobby. Mm. Um, mm. And now we do 10 a month, probably at least I would have thought. But, but the soul has to be reference to the old ways and the old work and then mechanise as you need. But you've got to think, sign writing is not really like many of the craft skills. If I was a Thatcher, let's say, for instance, I could say I can put you in, in two years' time to do your roof. If someone rings you and they're opening their shop in two weeks, I either say I can't do it or I will do it. And I have to work to the tightest of deadlines so far from it being, I, I probably wouldn't do the job without technology, to tell mm. you the truth, to mm. a certain extent. Yeah. Because. Just I too wouldn't, hard. Yeah. Just, yeah. It, I wouldn't be making a living. I wouldn't be satisfying my You wouldn't customers. have the variety, would you? You wouldn't have, be able to take on as many clients. No. So it's fueled you being able to be where you are today, yeah. where you've got these 10 jobs. But you didn't have 10 jobs to start with, as you said. You, no. you, you know, tell no. me about those early days so you're with your now uh, wife are yeah, you yeah yeah so you're going to build this future what were those early days were, like that we were really lucky we had a little tiny ex duck house that was converted to a laborer's cottage with no heating we lived in that and I had a little stable over the road that was our workshop november to sort of february was logging so uh, more logs were sold than signs i'd say <laughs> And I spent an awful lot of time driving around, meeting people, learning how to do things, learning where to buy the right stuff. And I spent an awful lot of time driving back from jobs, waiting for the phone to ring. And I get back, this is pre-mobile phones. Oh, Ash, that sign you've just done, there's something up, or there's this, or there's that. And I had years of, right, I'll go and get it sorted. And I paid for my education by making mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. I didn't subscribe to the theory you only make a mistake once. 
It was a daily <laughs> occurrence. And um, I didn't really have too many people to, to ask, but by making those mistakes, I learned really well how to solve and resolve issues and what would go wrong, what to wait for. And then after a year or two, you'd get back from a job and the phone didn't ring. You thought, wow, how special is that? It hasn't rung. And life's been like that ever since. You know, mistakes still happen, but 50% of the job is about how to solve them when they're happening. Usually they're happening in the workshop these days. The other thing from those early days was I got involved in Letterheads, which is a, a worldwide movement started in the 70s in America, where some sign apprentices got together and said, let's swap ideas and let's find out how they used to make this. And from that, I have traveled the world, worked with my best friends, my godparents, the kids, my kids' godparents are other sign writers from Scotland. I've got friends in America, every state in Australia. Uh, quite interesting, until about five years ago, there was hardly a sign writer in Europe that we knew of. There were a few in Paris. And then about well, probably six years ago now, Mike Meyer, an American sign painter, and I went on a tour, a teaching tour. And we went, we did the first one in London got on the train, went to Berlin, went from Berlin to Warsaw and Warsaw back to Amsterdam. And we did, we taught probably 30 people or so on that course. And I'm not saying as a result of the course, but certainly it sparked because a lot of those people that we taught in those courses are now running courses of their own and inspiring other people. But it's certainly there's sign writers all over Europe now, which is brilliant, you know, because Portugal had a wonderful history of sign writing. Go to Porto and see the beautiful shop fronts. Look at them in Vienna. There's some wonderful glasswork uh, in Vienna and an excellent museum to sign writing. Spain has lovely stuff. Paris is, is unequaled. I think sign painting had probably fallen under the, the Iron Curtain and things had become very mechanised. There was no need to make shop signs attractive. So there it, it was harder. Certainly Eastern Germany and the former Eastern Germany and Poland, there wasn't a tradition of it. But now the work that's been done in Warsaw big murals painted, photorealistic advertising. It's so inspiring. It's wonderful, you know, that, oh. that they're all out there doing it. it oh, gosh, it, that's brought a tear to my eye. I think because, you know, just recently I've just so realised that finding, I mean, I talk about it all the time, but I've had a few experiences over the last week where when you find your tribe, when you really find your groove and your 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 pace in life and the people that you're meant to be around, yeah. the fact that you bring them into your family and that yeah. you travel and that they are just one big family spread across with, with, with your passion. Have you read bringing... my letter to self? Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't, <laughs> but I will move on, though, and I, I won't get teary. Each week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner, NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner on our ad break is inspired by Kate Ness. Over to you. I take inspiration from a 400 million year old journey cast in stone. My name is Lisa Poulsen. Growing up in Caithness at the far north of Scotland, I was surrounded by the county's flagstone and the vast natural landscape composed during its formation. As a digital artist, 
I see sky, sea and land in the stone's colours, textures and gradients. Through digital processes, I reconstruct simplistic landscapes using photographs of stone captured from local sites, including harbours, beaches, paving slabs and even ancient standing stones. Through my work, I aim to encourage a deeper connection between people and their land. You can find the full Stonescape collection at inspiredbykaithness.com. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. Tell me for our listeners, it would be really fascinating to hear because I've had a, a little sneak peek of this. I know you have a lot of early starts and I've enjoyed watching you through Instagram and what you're up to. What's your average week like? It depends how much Pret Manger want us to uh, be doing, how many shops they've got for us that <laughs> week. But it's long. The only way to make a living where you can pay insurances, pay vehicles, pay wages, pay rents is by putting the hours in. This isn't a job where it comes lucky. It's completely related to ours. I work very closely with Spectrum Signs, Mark Joslin, who is another hero of mine. And Mark is an ogre when it comes to uh, getting into it. So we always leave at about 5-ish, 5.30. That way you can get to London for 7. And then we'll get a job done and then another job done and then perhaps a prep at night. So we might get home at 9 or 10 or sometimes 2 I try not to do them back to back every day, otherwise they bust you. But you might. Get I just st- love that. So nine, ten, or sometimes two. Yeah, it yeah. can be. We try to keep <laughs> the worst one. We did. A, we were driving in over the Westway at six. I remember it now because Steve Allen was on LBC, and we came out of a job that night. We left Westfield, and Steve Allen was back on, and the sun was coming back up. <laughs> that wasn't one of the. I want to do it every day, but it had to be done. Yeah, that was a long shift. And is it five days a week or? It's seven days a week, except in the cricket season. I, my son started playing cricket about five years. Well, he played for a while, but he got to the age where I could play with him. And I thought, if I'm playing cricket both days of the weekend, I can't be working. So I skived. I still have to work in the mornings, but I started skiving. So if, if the swallows are here, I probably won't be working all the weekend. But when the swallows go, they leave us with the workload. Oh, my goodness. And which jobs do you say yes or no to? Do you turn down a lot of jobs? Sarah will say I don't turn down as many as I should. I hate saying no to people because I remember the hard times when the work wasn't there. And I hate people wanting something and we can't supply that need for them. So I take on most stuff. But with my glass signs, for instance, when you came, Holly, you you were the perfect customer. And I get these days I can tell within a minute or so if we're on the same wavelength and it's really important because I made made a series of the Victorian style sort of glass fascias to people's logos and I put them up and I never got a good feeling out of them they were just a sign and then I realized what I was doing wrong that they weren't designed on a computer and they weren't 
using modern language. For instance, emails never look great on them, I don't think, and telephone numbers. From then on, I almost always revert to, if, if you'll let me design it, I want to make it for you because people aren't getting the best and mm. people don't know what's out there. You know, they don't know mm. what's available. It's better for me now in that I've got, you know, quite a nice portfolio of work that people come to me for. But certainly in the earlier days, it was, it was difficult because of that. But I, I still take on too much. Hence, I'm at the work weekends until April the 14th. First game. <laughs> first <laughs> Probably game. Probably raining. <laughs> As I'm interviewing my favourite sign painter, I have to ask you about your speciality. Do you have a favourite sign, old or new? And Or do you have one that you wish you'd made or created? Oh, that's a good question. Do you know the glass faces? I love them all. Your shop, for instance, is is as good as it gets for me. It's oh, in that you've you've let me do everything. Really, you guys have guided me, but you've let me have my head, and it's just a dream job to do. Another one that came off yours that went onto a really special shop front, Bramble and Moss down in uh, Richmond, a world class shop front. There can't be many more, so I was really lucky to get that. But the ladies had seen yours, and again, they let me have my head. Byfords. That probably kicked off our big manufacturing of glass signs because Ian had wanted want so much stuff up there. I thought, I'm never going to be able to make this all by hand. How am I going to do it and make it affordable? And that really put me into a mm. proper manufacturing process and working out the best ways. You had to start rewiring some stuff, did you, to, to think, yeah. right, well, maybe how do I make this now commercial? I had to find methods that didn't rely on just making it all as we were taught at college. There were 60-odd glass signs in there. We only had a two months or three months. We made all the shop fittings and cabinets and fridge Oh, linings. I didn't realise you did all of yeah, that Yeah, and well. all the, the panelling out in the dining room and the doors. and the, There was a lot of work. It was, um, oh, well, it was, it's still, still so beautiful. I came across a beautiful old one the other day in the Cotswolds called Jesse Smith & Co., which was a butcher still going since 1808. Or I love there's, um, do you know the umbrella shop in London? Yeah, called jo- G- Smith's. Yeah, yeah James yeah, Smith & Sons, which has been making umbrellas since 1830. I have one. Do you? Fine umbrellas, yeah. And as you said, Bramble & Moss up the road for, from us in Richmond yeah. and just one of the most beautiful, beautiful shops I mean ever yeah. do you have a, a favorite shop front you know so you talk about your signs but you much you travel don't you so- yeah I, I think Bramble and Moss's shop front is is pretty those big curved windows there's not many like it Porto is a place that is full of similar things it prospered from the wine trade so much that loads of money was put into the the infrastructure the Victorian infrastructure of the, of the city and uh, that's that's a city to see the signs are, are ailing, you know, in that they're older. But this year, there's a letterhead event in Porto. So um, there's a new generation coming through and I'm sure they'll pick up the mantle and, and do the city proud. The beautiful world that we're talking about, and if you hadn't already guessed, the team and I are completely obsessed with beautiful old shop fronts. One of our missions at Holly & Co is to try and restore the high street back to what it once was in every town, allowing it to feel unique and different and made up of the wonderful artisans and independents and experts in their field. You know, I, we know it's going to be a different model or the model's going to refine I almost look at it like you have now a shop front is powered by your online backs. So actually the two, the tech and the theatre mix mm, and create exactly. something new. Going back to how it used to be, though, as I mentioned, the retail theatre, the care, attention, craft with that 
added benefit that we do have tech, social media, this amplification that can happen very quickly. When we were creating our signage with you, my co-founder Gabby had this book called A Nation of Shopkeepers, which I think you'd recommended to her. And we discovered this beautiful old cricket bat shop called W.J. Breeden and Co. on the High Street in Leighton, a family business passed on by generations to generations. And it was this image actually that really helped inspire the Holly and Co beautifulness that it is today and it just made me think you know I love how niche those shops used to be in that high street book I mentioned they had um, the letter light makers but they also had the oyster shop the cheesemonger and the public used to travel and visit to these places and these shops stayed for years and years. And it's the reason why, and I know we spoke about it, that I'm investing so much in making Holly & Co as beautiful as possible because I'm going to be there till I'm 80. I want to make my town St Margaret's a destination. I want to try and, as much as you, influence people about how retail can be about theatre again, that it's not just about the past. And Actually, I would love to pass it on to my Harry if he would ever take it. Can you see us going back to a time where that soul returns? I've given this a lot of thought recently, and I think we're at a state of transition at the moment. And the high street has to go one of several ways. The the benefit of that may be that small shops don't command as high rent as they used to. And then artisan makers shopkeepers again can buy their shop as a house live above the shop i see that as as a definite possibility when they become if the rents come down which if people aren't taking them up that's the only way they are going to go i see it as almost the the shortage of the 90s or the 80s you know no one else wanted to be there so the creative types move in and i think the prettier you make a place the more people want to be in it if you look at the shot look at the photos you see on instagram for which which i use all the time now and i think it's wonderful look at shop fronts the only shop fronts you see on there are beautiful ones people don't photo anything other than for its beauty that must mean that people are clicking on them and liking them there's an appeal there's something mm-hmm. that subconscious that appeals mm-hmm. to that sense of continuity and individualism the high street is far from individual anymore it's identikit so the small destinations, like where have I been recently that I, I like? Hastings, for instance. There's a local sign writer down there, Rob Freeth. He's made that town his own and made it really individual. Whitby used to be like it. Alan Freeman was a sign writer up there, sadly passed now, but he certainly made the town their, their own. I think small towns that, that can have a local artisan, the unofficial planner of the, of the town, that they just do what they think is right and probably with much more sympathy than any listed building officer or, or council planner will do. They, they've got the heart and the feel of it. They know the techniques. They know how it used to be and how it was done. Mm. They'll give you something special if you let them, let them do their own thing. And I think it's interesting what you say, this unofficial planner. I love it. Because no one, believe you me, wants to be these sort of heads of trade associations and things like that. There's a huge mm. amount of work. Yeah. But someone's got to do it. Yeah. This unofficial planner, you cannot leave it to councils and you cannot leave it to other people. No. So you take it on yourself one little bit at a time. What can you do to change the environment? Your sign writers across 
across the country left their mark yeah. um, because not because they were looking for the buck that came from the next, because they could see a beautiful picture that they were painting. And it's your gift, isn't it, that there you is. can... And there's very, very few. I can't think of any sign writers who do it for the money. You might as well go and fit kitchens or anything. You'd be much better off. Every person I've ever met who does it, does it because they love it. There's not, there isn't any others. So when you're getting someone, they will stamp their authority on, on an area if you let them. They'll make it beautiful. But you reminded me, I was working in Walthamstow the other day, uh, Walthamstow Village, and it's had a little bit of money spent on it, a small road. We were doing a pub there. What a community. It was amazing. All day long, I, they must have a lot of blackouts because everybody was pregnant or had a baby. I've never <laughs> seen so many pushchairs in my whole life. And it was people all day long, up and down the road, chatting to each other. There was a couple of coffee shops. They were full all day. It was a really inspiring place. Now, it probably leads to a gentrification idea, but, it's, but every community could be like that. If people stand up and say, I'm going to make my bit nice and I'm going to be community orientated, it doesn't take a lot. A few people, that was a small street, but it was beautiful. And uh, it really made me think this is, this is what places could be like. Mm. So you and I haven't been long apart because launching Holly & Co's second property, you did the beautiful work on our second shop. It was amazing because I remember talking to you and thinking, right, we're, we're nearly at the finish line. You know, the sign went up and the baskets went out, the charcuterie and the sandwiches and the chefs and every everybody was working their way in our deli. And I was thinking, yeah, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. And I remember you just reminding me at that time, you know, and then it will begin, Holly. Yeah. And I was just laughing with you about yeah. how unbelievably hard work it is to launch a physical property, a premises. So, you know, even though I'm all for everyone doing it, you know, it's not something for the faint-hearted. You must see that all the time because you're there just at these points, aren't you, yeah. of a weeks before opening. I'm not alone then. No, no, no. You're, you're definitely not alone. It it's a stressful time in everyone's life and you've put in months, usually years of work to that point and you're over the hurdle, but then you're just beginning. That's when you have to learn the trade and how to run a shop and all the other things that come with it. And you think it's over, but it's just beginning. But then that's being self-employed and it's, it makes us stronger for it. Those that didn't want to do it wouldn't do it. <laughs> I know that much, <laughs> but it, 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 I, I see it all the time. And I, I think it's wonderful because people usually, once they realize that, they jump in with both feet. My wife opened a shop before we went to sign writing college. She had a really successful little shop selling stuff that our friends made. This was back in the 90s, Bagpuss & Co, it was called. She did really well, but I, I remember it with her. And I remember seeing the hours and hours that went into it all. And now I see it every once a week with a a new shop will do, but people do it. And that's the wonderful thing. That's the great mm. thing about the human spirit that we will just keep doing mm. it. And the future of the high street, what do you think about that? I, I think it, it's specialisation or nothing. It's a destination or nothing. And I really hope that young people can get shops and live work premises as well. Why, why commute when shops were designed to live over? But how many people actually live over a shop anymore? So to me, I think that if you can make something in your basement that's useful, that people need, I can't think of a better job for people, a better way of life. In fact, all of this is a way of life. Job doesn't really come into it. Everything's a way of mm. life. Mm. Um, if you're living above a shop, it's a way of life. And I, I'd love to see that. 
shops that are beautiful. Destin- I love the word you used earlier about a stage because that's what it is. It is theatre. And the chap that taught me, he didn't have a shop, but his cottage, 14th century, improved 1450, I think, from what he, how he describes the cottage. He always talked of it as his theatre and stage. And that's exactly it. As soon as you went in there, you were under a spell. And he made, he was a sign writer, he built gypsy caravans, he made old furniture. Create a stage, a theatre. That's, I think that's the way forward. And for anyone listening who maybe has dreams of being a sign painter, what's the sort of number one tip of getting into the profession? Well, the University of YouTube is brilliant. Something that we didn't used to have. <laughs> There's a few great books um, yes. that uh, if anyone contact me, I'd, I'd recommend. I'll always take people out on jobs with me. Anyone who wants to come, so long as they know that there is a lot of kneeling and loud noises and dusty and it, it's probably not like it is in the films if it's ever been in the films. <laughs> uh, there's no glory in uh, being on the pavement on your hands and knees. I have witnessed it. Yeah, I no have witnessed it. There is a, yes, you've got to be ready to get down and dirty. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it is. Um, I know my dad says sometimes when he comes, when we come back from a, a long campaigning session and we're covered in muck and he says, you look like you've been to war. And sometimes at the end of the day, you feel it wouldn't be a very brutal one, but it does have some similarities. <laughs> I would say do that. There's a few courses out there. Contact local people, sign writers, learn about letters. But well, if you're into it, you'll make it happen. It, it will happen. It's your calling. Yeah. So until 2008-ish, no one wanted to be a sign writer. There wasn't anyone. I, I was the youngest of all of us, uh, all of my pals in the letterheads and around the, uh, around the country. Then, I don't know what happened with the 2008 credit crunch. I think a load of young people didn't see a future in the normal office computer-based and thought, I'm going to do my own thing, which was wonderful. And all of a sudden, there was loads of people picking up a brush. And it literally happened almost overnight. There was a film came out called The Sign Painters in America. That certainly piqued some interest you know there might be I don't know it's probably five or six seven hundred sign writers in the UK now possibly more but in 2008 there might have been a hundred so it really wow. has changed that much real yeah. boom in, it's in, brilliant. in and you know there were people as you mentioned switching that nine to five into doing something more creative well, and, to five to nines yeah well <laughs> and all of it yeah. actually yeah. it was just when you think about what you did tossing that coin barrister yeah. or sign painter yeah. it was the right move for you but what Definitely. would you say to other people who might be in that coin flicking mm. moments in their lives what would you what advice would you give them you've got to blaze your own trail you've got to follow your heart and your instincts I think that's the only way you'll know but go back to the 80s the 70s people had one career these days people have five careers so you could do it you can do both everyone's going to be working a lot lot longer both by choice and having to so the future is actually you can be a barrister and a sign writer and probably something else. I see that as a, well, an adventure. Isn't that fantastic? You can do everything. You haven't just got to get a clock for being a barrister at the end of it or bank <laughs> clerk. You can have done a few things. 
I could talk to you, oh my goodness, forever. And I'm buying you a lovely glass of wine or a crafted ale at the Holly & Co bar very, very soon. You are such a busy man, so I'm not going to keep you. But I just want to say your mission of bringing beauty back up to our high street, crafting community by your very hands and what you do is so needed. And you inspire inspire me and you are going to inspire so many people remember we can't do it without customers like you who share that vision without people coming to us and saying i want it to look lovely we're we're spare parts we need young entrepreneurial people that have a vision and then we can really help but Mm. without that creative soul that people who are prepared to risk and put time in we're we're useless we need you I end these interviews talking about the roller coaster of running a business, a sign painted van of running a business, herring up the motorway up and down. Tell me about your biggest low, your hardest time on this journey so far. I was, I've been thinking about this a lot since you, you mentioned you might ask me that question over the last week or so. And the lows are always down to time and pressure. Long hours, I don't mind because I'm with my mates. We're up ladders calling each other names and singing stupid songs. It's wonderful. The, the hard hours are easy to cope with when you're with good lads and ladies. But it, it, it's the time pressure that is always the low. I can't think of anything else. I have nothing to be low about in what I do. I get to make stuff. I do moan a lot, don't get me wrong. I moan more than most. But I, I still turn up. Um, but it, it, I don't know, the, the lows are just that. We had, for instance, last week, we made this huge five and a half metre long by two metre high mirror, brewing mirror. you were telling me, yeah. You were That's a challenge. I think knees. that might be a, a world record. Just the scale of making it in a time frame and one thing going wrong, it could not be fixed. One thing. There was a low involved in that, but when it went in the van and the customer rung me and said, oh, we love it. Oh. Then it, that was over and was I moved on. Yeah, yeah. Then I, 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 that was the roller coaster, the whole thing. You went straight up. And, and if we go straight up, what would be the high? Oh, so many. I, every time I fit one of our nicer signs or make a little glass sign for someone, I'm, I'm happy. Doing your shop, honestly, uh, was a great thing for us. Byford's, Coca-Cola's headquarters, European headquarters, we got to, to do what we wanted. That was pretty special um, considering they kind of, created the advertising trade oh my trips to america we did a couple of years back 2016 went to a community event where we painted murals in marshall in illinois and that was pretty special the community had saved for two or three years to fund it there were 200 people from all over the world i got given my own wall in memory of the local gypsy queen and we painted this picture up and the family came and the picture I had taken it from, the lady that I, I painted, I think there's about an 80% chance that she was actually related to these people. And it was, it was a, a real coincidence. Oh, what a moment. Yeah, oh, special. It was, uh, she was buried in the town of Marshall. The tale went that since she was buried there, a tornado has never hit the town. It's always gone round it. So it was a blessing sign and it was a pretty special thing to do. And the whole community came out, brought us drinks and suntan lotion and dinner and beer and more beer and more beer. It was 110 degrees on the wall. So it was, you did need to lubricate. 
Uh, and we had a week of that and we were hosted in a local house. So that was a, that was definitely another high. Gosh, what an experience. And I, I'm now asking also my guests, um, someone that you would recommend me interviewing on this podcast, someone that's inspired you. Well, I get inspired almost every day by people who make stuff, run shops, I have a craft skill, but people who really got me started in thinking bigger were Will and Marie of Old Town in Holt and they started their business back in I would have thought the late 80s starting to make workwear as if American wear had not come to Britain and the war hadn't come we just continued in the clothes we were and they have always inspired me with their eye for detail in everything they do and I was lucky enough to have dinner with them last week so I to me, they're artisan creators and shopkeepers who have, have inspired me for many years and put me on a really special track. So it's, we've come to that point of the interview where I don't know what you've written, but I have asked you to prepare a letter to your younger self. And I am just, yes, blown away by you, Ash. And I just look forward to hearing what you have to say. Can I say that when you give the letter to the younger self job, you really do find a soft underbelly of people. And this is probably one of the hardest things I've ever had. To, I hadn't really thought about it till yesterday, sort of morning. I started pondering over. And it is, uh, you have to reach down into the darker places to, to find the light. So I will, I'll try and do this, but I can't guarantee I'll get through this in one bit. It's a okay. casualty, just wheel uh, uh, me If out. anyone's heard this podcast before, I barely ever get through this bit in one piece. So <laughs> over to you, Ash. Right. Dear Ash, letter to your younger self. You're now 22 years into your career, and as if there was any other choice, you are unemployable. It's always difficult to take advice, particularly from yourself, but the forthcoming is heartfelt and will save much heartache, so try to take it in for once. You started this journey against the odds. You're certainly not where you thought you would be. This adventure, or possibly pilgrimage may be a better word, commenced because of your instincts and your intuition. It is unique to you. And always be receptive to the advice of others and allow room for them, but don't let others show you your path. Your creative inner self has a subconscious vision, often blurry, sometimes vanishing, but it has seen a direction, so blows your own trail. Surround yourself with the most wonderful people. That is the best advice I can give you. You have won life's lottery with your family. Make those that you share your work with your family also. They will be few and far between, but when you find them, grasp them like the jewels they are. Share your passion and pain with them. Be inspired and educated by them. Laugh and commiserate with them. Let them make you, in the words of Stuart McCarran, more human. This adventure will be every day. It will be all-consuming. Embrace it and commit totally. Always seek out what interests you wherever it lays. Travel to learn and make friends worldwide. Revel in others' makers' skills, their trades, advice and their tales. You will learn an awful lot. Fascinating people are everywhere. All you have to do is find them. Try always to be open, humble, amenable and sunny. Passion and good manners are usually ingratiating. Never stop being inspired by the people you meet, the world around you, how things are made and how others have designed their lives. Life is a hundred times too short to ever be bored. Always look up and not down. You'll be amazed at what you see. The rear of a building, as in life, tells a more truthful tale than the front. The world holds many wonders and interests. Your biggest regret will be that you're only scratching the surface of them. Stay focused on what really excites you. 
You will build a unique set of skills. Try not to involve yourself in work that doesn't motivate or impassion you. Hold fast to your instincts. Do what you love. Always set a high standard. Be conscious, though, that standards are flexible to the circumstances, the price and the time allowed. Don't beat yourself up when a job is not your best. Two hours notice in the snow, up a ladder in the dark will never produce the best work. You were there, you got it done, you overcame adversities. These standards are high in themselves. Never ask people to do tasks you would not do, except perhaps plasterboarding. Try to take the bigger load. Sometimes you can make a difference just by being there alongside others when no difference can be made. Time will always be against you. It will be a constant foe. This said, you must try to find time for others, for your family and your friends, for learning and for yourself. Ponder this great conundrum daily. It will be your unbroken battle. Take up cricket in your 20s, not your 40s. Make yourself laugh and try to make others laugh, especially during the times of darkness and hardship. Take on and finish one project at a time. Do it well and to completion. This probably won't be your natural route. Recognise and accept your fallibilities and weaknesses early and play more to your strengths. You have everything to live an amazing, creative, loving and prosperous life. Never forget this gift that many will never see. Be humbled by it. There will be hard, stressful, overwhelming times, however long they will pass. And most of all, remember this. Keep on keeping on. Ah, <laughs> oh, you talk about this jewel, you know, and that these people around you are jewels. And I think anyone who would be sitting here would say the same thing. You're a jewel to us all. Because from the moment I've met you, you bring such happiness and such sunshine to what you do. You're on a mission yourself and you make things more beautiful, but you just are beautiful. And I just want to say thank you oh, for thank being you for, our jewel. Thank Ash. you for, for making me look inside as well, Holly, because uh, I might be an inch better person for reading that. As Stuart McLaren always tells me every day, I try to make myself more human. <laughs> Bless you. I'm going to need a big hug now with all these tears running down my face. Thank you you so much, Ash. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come